Good afternoon, uh, good morning, and good evening, depending where you are. Uh, and uh, welcome to this uh, sixth uh, lecture of uh, the uh, Middle East 101 course uh, organized uh, by my colleague, uh, Dr. Aisha, at the uh, Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. Uh, today, we have the great pleasure of welcoming uh, Dr. Lee Chen Sim, uh, who's uh, talking to us uh, live from uh, the UAE, from uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, who will be with us for the next uh, hour and, uh, and 15 minutes, uh, discussing economic and social challenges. Uh, we, and more particularly, the, the topic of uh, the oil and gas uh, policies uh, in the Middle East. Uh, over the last weeks, we we covered uh, the topic of uh, climate change, uh, as well as social reforms and the economic diversification in the Gulf. Uh, and obviously, uh, if I may say, uh, the, the elephant in the room uh, is the, uh, the, this, the future of oil and gas uh, policies in the region. So to do that, uh, it's a great pleasure uh, to have uh, Lee Chen Sim with us. Uh, she's a frequent uh, speaker uh, to our uh, events. And uh, thank you very much, Li Chen, for uh, being with us again uh, today. Let me just say a few words on uh, the speaker before uh, leaving the floor uh, for her presentation. Uh, as I said, Dr. Li Chen is talking uh, from uh, Abu Dhabi, where she is assistant professor at the Khalifa University. She holds a PhD in politics from Oxford University. And uh, I should say also she's uh, uh, she studied at NUS, uh, did her BA uh, here uh, on the campus. Uh, she's a prolific writer and uh, edited several uh, volumes, uh, several edited volumes. Uh, most recently, one that uh, we uh, we introduced uh, during a, a book launch here at the institute, Asian Perceptions of Gulf Securities, which was published last year by Routledge. But let me also add another edited volume that uh, Li Chen Sim uh, co-edited and which relates directly to uh, the discussion today, Low Carbon Energy in the Middle East and North Africa, which was published by Paul Grave uh, in 2021. Now, without further ado, uh, I will uh, leave the floor uh, to Dr. Li Chen for the presentation. And after that, uh, we'll have the Q&A with the participants. Thank you very much. Li Chen, floor is yours. Thank you very much, Yulandu, for the very generous and kind introduction. Um, it is certainly a pleasure to be back here, invited by um, my friends at the Middle East Institute. Um, I was asked to speak on the region's oil and gas, uh, obviously something I'm really happy to do because of my research interests, as uh, Dr. Saman mentioned. Um, but also because I've been living here in this uh, region uh, for close to two decades. So um, it really is heartening um, to see, um, you know, the good level of interest in the Middle East, uh, in Singapore in particular. So without further ado, I'm going to attempt to share my screen. Good. All right. So, um, yeah, so let me start um, by again saying thank you uh, once again, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, the topic today is going to be focused, as Jean-Lu said, much on the oil and gas, um, but I will also look um, slightly at a wider picture of the Middle East. Now, I like to always start um, these kinds of lectures with a slide um, that will show 
Exactly. I always like to start with this particular slide or this particular graphic. Um, it's from Visual Capitalist, and it shows um, which items are the top revenue earners in the world. And in this case, I've zoomed into the Middle East. Um, as you can very clearly see from the slides, um, the top revenue earners here in this region where I'm sitting is clearly oil and gas. And this is probably not surprising to many, I assume, Singaporeans who are tuning in because, you know, the Middle East is generally associated with oil and gas. Now, the reason for, so, so is this a true or is this a slightly false assumption? Um, I would say that it is, by and large, you know, quite a true picture on the one hand, because the Middle East has quite a lot of comparative advantage uh, when it comes to producing oil and gas. Um, it's got the correct geography for it. Um, it's got the correct topography for it. For example, um, the oil and gas fields in the Middle East tend to be pretty large. Um, and concentrated in one place. This makes exploration and production um, much easier, for example, compared to the US, where yes, there's a lot of oil and gas use, but they tend to be really small and scattered around different areas. So it's not as um, economical to exploit them because they are smaller fields. So for reasons of geography, topography, uh, sand, as opposed to say permafrost in Siberia, um, as opposed to things like um, there are very small, generally, populations in the oil and gas producers, which means that the domestic population doesn't consume a lot of the oil and gas produced, which means that you know, they can actually export it. Unlike, say, large countries like the US, where the big population tends to self-consume quite a lot of the um, produced oil and gas. So there is a kind of a comparative advantage in the Middle East, uh, which is why we, they generally produce a lot of oil and gas. Now, having said that, the good news is that um, because they produce a lot of oil and gas, when oil and gas prices are really high, that's good for the Middle East economies, right? Because um, the more money they earn, uh, the more income they get, um, the faster they can invest it in various projects and they can grow their economies. So it was not surprising that last year in 2022, um, Saudi Arabia was perhaps the fastest growing economy in the world with a GDP growth of around, let's see, 8.7% last year. That's a stunning uh, GDP growth, right? So, so that's the good news. Um, so you can see here again, uh, I just wanted to show you a slide on the comparative advantage. If you look at the light blue bar, you will see that that depicts the comparative production costs of oil in Saudi Arabia, which is around $3 a barrel. And this compares to say, uh, maybe around $10 in, in the US, uh, and it can go up to over $40 uh, in Canada, um, or even in Russia in some of the offshore fields. So you can see $3, it's a really um, you know, low price for um, producing an extra barrel of oil. So that's a comparative advantage. Now, the bad news in some of this is that um, as the world tries to wean itself of fossil fuels, um, as the amount of oil in the ground gets depleted because oil and gas are naturally uh, depleting sources of um, exhaustible resources, 
Um, the problem is that there's less and less oil and gas, and hence, uh, generally, there's less and less revenue um, to be earned. And the problem here is for these oil and gas producers, they can be very vulnerable um, to the fact if oil prices drop, right? Um, they have tried, to, and you can see that till today, um, oil and gas producers in the Middle East are still very dependent on oil revenues. If you look at the chart on the right, it shows you that despite some changes in the, the 10 years between 2010 and 2020, uh, oil, and gas produce, uh, oil and gas revenues are still very important to the government budget in the Middle East, as you can see from the, um, the, uh, uh, the collective one in green. So roughly something like 60% uh, of uh, the budget still comes from oil revenues, and, and that's a really large figure. This, of course, varies across the region, and which is why you'll see in the chart on the left some uh, Middle East producers being more vulnerable to um, low prices of oil in the future if we get to a low-carbon transition. Um, the, the ones that are in the lighter reds, they are the ones that are less vulnerable to a post-oil future because they have um, started on efforts at diversification, right? So um, it, it, it pays to think about how different oil and gas producers are not quite the same uh, in terms of their strategies to deal with a post-oil future. Now, um, uh, one thing I do want to point out is that um, even for these oil and gas producers, the future is not really as bleak as we, we assume it to be, right? Because we assume Middle East equals oil and gas, post oil and gas Middle East equals disaster. But that's not really true because um, some of these oil and gas producers actually do produce other things, right? Um, and other things of value, and that's earning them quite a decent revenue. And this screen here shows you several examples of that. At the top left-hand corner, um, you'll see Emirates Steel from the UAE, which is producing um, and selling a lot of steel, particularly to Asia, but also to Europe, where the UAE is among the top 10 uh, exporters of steel um, to, um, to Europe. Um, for those of you who, like my mom, drives a um, BMW car that is electric, um, you you may know that um, some of the UAE's aluminum is actually in the BMW electric car because it produces um, solar-powered aluminum from solar-powered um, uh, power plants here in the UAE, and that's considered um, you know low-carbon aluminum. Um, UAE uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, also is very active in in um, its its investments in wind and in solar in different countries around the world. Uh, you see a picture there of Fast and Furious, um, and that depicts how the UAE also has a, quite a thriving uh, movie industry, um, where you have Mission Impossible, Fast and Furious, um, filming here in the in in the UAE. Um, you of course have tourism in Oman. You have um, microchips. Uh, owned by uh, UAE companies. In fact, uh, one of the campuses is in Singapore. And so, you know, there are these various industries, including aluminum, which you see in Bahrain in the picture at the bottom. Um, th there are things that these traditional oil and gas producers do do 
apart from just oil and gas, right? So the assumption number one is not quite true, although there is a grain of truth to that. I'd like to move on and talk about assumption number two, um, being two out of four assumptions that I'd like to raise uh, in this particular talk. Assumption number two is that um, uh, there will be a rise of um, gas exporters in place of oil exporters. Now, traditionally, if you look at the Middle East, oil has reigned supreme over gas, right? Uh, there are many more oil um, suppliers here in the Middle East, and oil has traditionally been a more valuable commodity uh, compared to gas. Uh, the oil producers do produce gas, but traditionally the gas has just been burned off because it wasn't seen to be as valuable as oil, which is one of the world's um, largest traded global commodity. I mean, if you think about it, everyone, most people have heard of OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. But how many of us have actually heard of the GECF? which is the Gas Exporting Countries Forum, right? So, so traditionally, my point is that um, the oil exporters have gained most of the attention around the world um, in within the Middle East. But this is changing. And I think that we should be aware of, you know, the assumption that oil always reigns supreme and think about how gas exporters in the region um, are also going to play a very big role um, uh, going forward, including currently. And the big change has to do with the fact that uh, gas is now slowly, it's now quickly actually becoming a globally traded commodity like oil. And this is because of the rise of a particular way of exporting gas around the world called uh, liquefied natural gas or LNG, whereby gas is super frozen um, and transported in really large um, ships around the world. And then at its destination, it is then unfrozen and made into a liquid, uh, sorry, into a gas again, and you can use it. Okay, so this has allowed gas to be transported safely and in huge volumes. Now, this technology of LNG gas is actually a game changer for um, a few of these gas exporting countries in the Middle East. Um, most of you, when I say gas exporter in the Middle East, you'll probably think of Qatar. And you won't be wrong because Qatar is the largest gas exporter in the Middle East. But there are other gas exporters as well in the Middle East. Um, the UAE, right, with liquefied natural gas, and you have Oman as well. They do export gas, um, but of course to a much smaller volume than they export oil. So think about LNG and how gas exporters are probably going to give the oil exporters in the Middle East a run for the money in terms of revenue and, and global influence. And part of the reason is because in a lower carbon world, in a world in which we move towards, say, renewable energy, gas is supposed to play a larger role. Not a smaller, I mean, a larger role uh, in terms of the fact that you will need gas uh, in order to balance the intermittency from solar and wind. Solar and wind, they don't. Um, they're not produced all the time in enough quantities to produce electricity. And especially at night, for example, when you don't have solar, um, gas peaker plants can kick in uh, to try to produce enough electricity for night use, right? Um, at the moment, of course, we can use batteries, 
uh, but batteries to compensate for the fact that you know the wind and the sun don't always shine and blow. Um, batteries are still really expensive in terms of a medium for storing um, renewable electricity. So until batteries get cheaper, um, gas peaker plants will still very much um, be needed to try to balance um, the the oil and uh, sorry the the solar and wind intermittency. So that's to keep the grid stable, so that your fridges will, and freezers will still work at night, for example. Okay, so so gas is still going to be a quite an important balancer in the electricity system um, until batteries actually kick in. Now, um, having said that. Maybe some of you would think, oh, well, then in that case, Iranian gas might have a shot, right? After all, um, Iran is the second, has the second largest um, proven reserves of gas uh, in the world. It shares a giant gas field with Qatar, which is largely unexploited because of sanctions, right? But um, um, I personally, um, I'm not very uh, optimistic at the chances of Iranian gas becoming a really big thing for several reasons. Um, because one, sanctions, which are still ongoing in Iran, sanctions tend to be quite sticky, which means that they take a long time to be lifted or even um, reduced, right? So which means that the Iranian gas industry will continue to be hobbled right, by sanctions. Even if sanctions are reduced slashed removed, um, I think many foreign companies and Iran will need the help of foreign companies to develop those fields, to develop LNG. Um, a lot of foreign companies will continue to be wary about investing in Iran for the fear of snapback sanctions, right? So what if you invest in a field in Iranian gas and then five years later, um, sanctions get, you know, chucked back onto Iran, you're going to have a problem with your investment. So that, that, there may be wariness over snapback sanctions if Iran, if Iran doesn't follow through its promises. And also, I think they have, there are nowadays many alternative LNG gas suppliers and developers in the pipeline. Um, obviously, you have the US, you have Qatar, you have Australia, which already play a big role in LNG. Um, but you also have players like um, uh, Oman, which is expanding its LNG. Uh, you also have Mozambique, which is whose projects are going to come online soon in a few years. So perhaps, um, you know, the window to develop Iranian LNG gas may have passed. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not so certain about the um, future for Iranian gas, um, despite uh, the fact that I think in general, gas exporters will have a higher profile in a post-carbon world. Let's move on to assumption number three. And the assumption here, um, given what I've said about a post-carbon world, um, would be that um, oil exporters are finished or in our local lingo, you know, habis, right? Oil, export, oil exporters are, you know, that's it, done. Habis, finish. Um, and so I, again, with this assumption, it's, it's, it's half and half, right? There's some truth to it, but I think as well, um, we must be careful to nuance the kind of assumption that we make about oil exporters. Um, on the one hand, it's true, right? Um, oil demand is falling globally, partly because you know um, there is more demand for electric vehicles, 
Um, a lot of countries, including Singapore, um, have put in place targets where they want to uh, ban the sales of new internal combustion engine vehicles, your traditional cars, by about 2030, by about 2035. The Europeans are doing it, the UK is doing it. Um, so there is increased demand for EV, there will be an increased demand for EV vehicles, which of course means less demand for oil, since about 60% of oil demand actually is actually demanded by transportation, right? So the shift to EV is really going to affect um, oil exporters. Uh, then oil demand is also going to fall globally because of different emission targets by countries. You know, uh, you want to pollute less, less carbon dioxide, and so it's not a great idea to burn oil or to use oil. Now, so, so that goes to part of the myth that oil exporters are finished. And if you look at the graph which I put there, um, different uh, agencies, oil companies um, have come up with different projections on when oil demand will fall. And you can see that there are a lot of different um, variations based on the scenarios, etc. But the point of this graph is to show you that no matter what happens, whichever scenario you use, whichever institution you go for, oil demand will fall by about, say, now even, or at least sometime during the mid-2030s, right? So, so that's, that's the general uh, projection, even though the exact time may be different. So um, on the other hand, though, I would caution you from thinking that you know, this is the end for oil exporters, because oil still has a very, very powerful role. If you think, if you think about OPEC+, Plus, Right, which is the organization where there are lots of um, oil exporting countries, they still are an extraordinarily powerful um, organization. Um, between July this year and September last week, oil prices rose by 27%, right? And about three quarters of that, according to JP Morgan, was because OPEC Plus came up with the decision to cut the supply of oil to the world, all right? Three quarters of that 20% price rise was due to that OPEC decision, right? So this shows that OPEC plus still has a lot of power to move oil markets, all right? Uh, to account for the fact that when you fill up your ICE cars, they're still gonna, you're, you're gonna have to pay higher prices for gasoline. Um, the fact that if you go for your year end holidays in December to Europe or something, you're gonna have to pay higher air prices because of higher jet fuel costs. So OPEC, still very powerful, don't write them off. Um, we also see that um, oil is also very important in terms of the products, the wide range of products, which requires some form of oil, some form of refined oil, some kind of an oil product um, uh, you know, that, that goes into making these things. Um, the clothes, that you wear, right? The computers that you type on, um, the, the plastics that are used in a lot of things, the semiconductor industry, all the things that you see on the chart in front of you, they all depend uh, in some way on oil, right? So you can't escape um, from these, from oil, uh, when you think about a whole wide range of consumer products. Even when you think of renewable energy, right? Renewable energy, in order to produce your solar modules, in order to produce your giant wind turbines, you need certain critical minerals. 
which you need to mine for, right? And in some countries, there's a huge mining industry for these critical materials that go into producing renewable um, energy equipment. And how do you mine for them? Well, you use huge diggers, you use huge excavators, you use huge dump trucks for these materials. And what do they run on? Fossil fuels, right? They run on oil in order to power these machines. Um, so, so again, you know, it's it's. I, I think it's premature to say that oil exporters are finished. There's still a very huge role for them, even in a post-oil future. Now, the oil exporters are not resting on the laurels. They're not just crossing their fingers and hoping that you know um, people still are going to need oil. They're actually quite proactive, right? Particularly here in the Gulf, they they really are proactive, and have come up with certain strategies on how to position themselves so that their products continue to be wanted, maybe not in the same degree, but that you know it's not a zero demand for it. Um, now, one good example is, if you look at the chart there, um, because of the war in Ukraine, um, you see that a lot of Gulf exporters who traditionally would export lots of their um, oil to Asia, they're now actually turning around and exporting diesel, for example, to, to Europe um, because of the sanctions that the Europe has placed on um, Russian crude and Russian diesel. So you see that you know, the um, uh, Middle East Gulf, uh, Middle East oil exporters have actually exploited the situation. They're very savvy, redirected the trade towards Europe, right? But again, they're not just looking at external conditions to keep their oil revenues flowing. They've actually actively taken um, strategies like trying to decarbonize the oil that they produce. Yes, oil produce carbon dioxide, but they try to reduce the level of carbon dioxide in the oil by various means. Um, a good example is, is where I live in UAE, the national oil company called Ethnoc, um, they've, uh, they're going to decarbonize the oil they produce by actually getting all the electricity that they use from oil operations from solar and nuclear electricity produced in the UAE. So that when they produce oil, it's no longer from gas-powered power plants, right? But it's from solar and nuclear-based power plants. So that, of course, automatically reduces the carbon content that it takes to produce that oil since you no longer use gas um, you know, to produce that oil. So, so this is one way in which they are trying to decarbonize oil. Then you will see that um, other gas producers are putting forward the concept of carbon being circular, right? Um, the idea is that, uh, you know, we can keep reusing carbon, even though we put carbon into the air, but we can actually reuse, recycle, remove and reduce the amount of carbon that we spew into the air by capturing it from all kinds of high-tech um, technology, um, by sucking out the carbon, by reusing uh, the carbon to be injected into oil fuels, etc. Okay, so basically oil producers are not just sitting there, they are also trying to make their oil more marketable in a post-carbon world. We go on to the fourth and probably final assumption. And that assumption, uh, which you hear quite often among uh, climate activists in these kinds of global conferences, that's, uh, that assumption is that 
oil and gas producers, whether in the Middle East or elsewhere, but as a group, um, oil and gas producers tend to be what they call climate deniers, right? Um, uh, organizations that refute that climate change is actually happening. Uh, they tend to be quite obstructionist in UN climate negotiations. They tend to try to water down the wordings of climate negotiations. Um, they, they take on all kinds of policies that try to slow down uh, the implementation of climate policies. Um, some people have accused them of like buying into um, uh, you know, research on climate change to try to um, influence the outcome of the research. So there are all kinds of accusations that are traditionally thrown at oil and gas producers, right? And even as recently as 2021, a very active group, um, as you can see there from the um, picture on the screen, actually, um, you know, uh, sarcastically awarded uh, Saudi Arabia an award for fossil of the day uh, for being obstructionist in, in some of these global climate change talks, right? So, so they really are seen um, as being not very helpful in the whole climate conversation. But like the other assumptions, I think we have to be a bit careful uh, when we, we tar them with this kind of assumption. Um, because I think we need to acknowledge that the Middle East countries have made some significant improvements um, to, and in fact, some sort of contributions maybe to the whole climate debate. And let me just give you a few examples. Um, two Gulf countries um, have hosted or will be hosting the global climate change talks called COP, whatever the number that is, right? So Qatar has hosted a previous edition of the climate change talks. And later this year, um, the UAE will host the, um, the next edition of these climate change talks. Another example I can give you is the fact that if you look at this chart here, um, this chart will show you that um, there is an organization that rates um, how countries do in their climate commitments. Um, you will see the Gulf states, um, you know, in kind of like the red there. Um, they are seen as, uh, let me see the phrase so I can see correctly. Um, they are rated as being highly in, insufficient in their climate commitments. Okay, highly insufficient, they are in red. Uh, that's uh, Saudi Arabia, clearly um, highly insufficient. And if you look right at the at the bottom there or at the tip of um, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE is in orange, which marks it out to be insufficient in its climate policies. So you might say, yeah, see, I told you they were climate deniers. But actually, it's not such a bad situation because if you look at it comparatively and globally, Indonesia, um, did you see that in the map, is also colored as being highly insufficient in their climate policies. And uh, oops, Singapore um, is actually listed as not just highly insufficient, but critically insufficient, right? So, okay, you can say that there are all kinds of reasons why Singapore is critically insufficient. It's climate policy, it's small, limited land space, cannot take up renewable energy, et cetera. While all that is true, the Gulf states can also give you a thousand and one reasons why they are listed as being highly insufficient or insufficient in their climate policies. The point here of this chart is actually to show you that they have made progress. If you looked at this same chart, say 10 years ago, right? They, I think you know, all the Gulf states will be listed as critically insufficient, 
but they have since made progress in their climate policies, especially by scaling up um, renewable energy ambitions. In Saudi Arabia, for example, they have targeted that they would like to see um, 50% of their electricity being uh, coming from renewable power by 2050. Okay, that's a lot, 50% by 2050. That's really ambitious, right? Um, yes, uh, some of you may know that they are quite um, far in reaching their target at the moment, but nevertheless, that's one of the ambitions. And they're not the only one of ambitions, right? All the Gulf states have ambitions ranging from a more modest 10% to 50% and various um, degrees in between. The point being, uh, renewables is quite a big thing um, these days in the Gulf states, right? Another example I can give you of them making uh, significant improvements to the whole climate thing is that um, um, a lot of the Middle East countries are vying uh, to produce uh, uh, low carbon hydrogen because low, low carbon hydrogen is seen to be the answer to certain industries that are very difficult, in which carbon dioxide is very difficult to reduce. Uh, things like perhaps shipping, things like steel making, in which you need a really high temperature. So um, these Gulf, a lot of the Gulf states are trying to position themselves as those who can produce low carbon hydrogen cheaply because of their gas um, or because of their solar or because of their nuclear. And Oman, for example, has a track that has signed recently about six different agreements with international um, power producers uh, worth about $20 billion to produce uh, green hydrogen in different plants in Oman because Oman not just has sunshine, it also has got enough wind power and the two combined uh, can uh, produce a lot of hydrogen. Right. Unlike some Middle East countries that have only one resource or the other, but not the two combined. Okay. And you might say, okay, look, well, they're not really, they're not doing all this because of climate, right? I mean, let, you know, are there other reasons why they're doing it? Well, it may be true that they're not doing this, um, all these changes just for the sake of protecting the climate, right? Obviously, there are a lot of economic opportunities for the Middle Eastern countries that want to diversify their economies away from oil and away from gas. So they are looking at hydrogen, they're looking at uh, renewable energies, trading in renewable electricity, trading in carbon, uh, coming up with low carbon steel and aluminum. All these are um, you know, ways to diversify a hitherto oil and gas dependent economy. So are there other motivations other than, you know, um, climate? Of course there are, right? But whatever the case is, whatever the motivation, I think um, it, it kind of um, underlines what I'm trying to argue, um, which is that hydrocarbon producers are not necessarily um, uh, unfriendly to climate policies, right? In fact, in some cases, it's in their interests to be more aligned with climate policies um, because they have these ambitions in a post uh, oil and gas world. So that's my fourth assumption. And for um, the conclusion, um, I just want to make a few points here to, to sum up the conclusion. 
but also to point out some opportunities for Singapore, not just Singapore companies, for Singapore-based companies and for some Asian companies that have so far been quite reluctant to engage more of the Middle East, right? Um, because they think it's just all about oil and gas. So the first point I'd like to make is that um, I hope that you have um, seen from this presentation that the Middle East is quite a diverse field of countries, right? It's really not just about oil and gas. It's also about other countries. Yes, we haven't talked about them, but it's countries like Morocco, right? Um, which um, has got a lot of green stuff going on. They are sending, they, they want to send electricity from uh, Morocco, which um, uses quite a lot of hydroelectricity, and they're also having a lot of solar and wind energy. They want to send that via um, undersea cables to Europe, for example, which is crying out for clean energy. Uh, so you have Morocco, so you have this diversity, Turkey, which is producing um, a lot of cars, for example. So, so don't go away with thinking that the Middle East is just all about oil and gas. There are other countries in the Middle East that, that really do other stuff. And the second point is that even among the oil and gas producers, right, which has been the focus of our talk today, even among the oil and gas producers, yes, they do produce oil and gas. And as I hope you have seen through the talk, oil and gas, as I argue, will continue to be very important and relevant in a low carbon world that we are aiming to move towards, right? So their products will still continue to be relevant, continue to be useful, and will continue to help drive some of the uptake in renewable energy because of the critical minerals that I talked about. Um, and these same oil and gas producers, um, they are also doing different things uh, in their economies, as I've tried to show, you know, not just renewable electricity, uh, they've also tried to do steel, aluminum, uh, they've also have petrochemicals, some of them even have pharmaceuticals. Um, so, so they really are doing different things um, apart from just oil and gas. I'm not arguing that these other things will bring in the same amount as revenue as, as oil and gas, because clearly oil and gas bring in like lots of revenue, but they are trying to diversify. And hence, they could be good partners for you know, companies in Singapore and in the region. So let me give you an example here. Um, you need to ship gas, right? You need to ship LNG, which is what some of these Middle East producers are looking at producing, liquefied natural gas. You need to ship this liquefied natural gas on special ships. Um, these special ships need to be built. And where are these special ships going to be built? Not in these countries, but actually in countries like South Korea, which has a very, which has a thriving shipbuilding industry. Um, it will be, you know, it's, a lot of orders have gone to South Korean shipyards. South Korean shipyards are now like overfull. And so some of these orders have actually flowed to Chinese shipyards, right? In order to build this, these ships, you're going to need things like, you know, steel, aluminum, all kinds of cladding, right? And that, again, um, produces opportunities for, for, for low-carbon steel and, you know, these kinds of products. Um, you're going to need engineering expertise to do all these LNG projects, to do renewable projects. And engineering expertise is something that Singapore companies, Asian companies are really good at because we do a lot of infrastructure work. Um, so these are just a few ways in which, you know, I hope you can see that 
um, and even among the oil and gas producers, there are non-oil and gas things that they can do. You need to ship hydrogen, right? Same same uh, equation comes into play where you need special ships, special engineering, et cetera, et cetera. So I hope um, that, that through this talk, I'll give you some idea of, of the fact that the Middle East is not just oil and gas, but even if it is a lot of oil and gas, they are still very important as, you know, as partners, uh, as um, investors, um, as interlocutors in the whole climate change debate. And I think I'll just stop there and I'll be happy to take questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lich and uh, Sim, for this uh, uh, presentation, which uh, brings a lot of nuances uh, on a topic that is uh, uh, quite complex. Uh, let me tell uh, our participants, if you'd like to ask a question, to uh, you can write it in the chat box and send it to a MEI event, and then I will collect them and uh, ask them directly uh, to our speaker. Uh, while the people start uh, thinking or writing their uh, their questions, uh, allow me to uh, use the, the privilege of the of the moderation to uh, ask you one question, uh, Lichen, which is on I would say the geopolitics geopolitics of uh, energy, and in particular the the consequences of the war in Ukraine. You you mentioned that uh, in one of your slides what we and for people like me, who are not expert at all on energy policies, it looks like uh, the Gulf states uh, were the big winners of what happened after the war in Ukraine and the rise of uh, oil prices. There is also this uh, perception, maybe for bad reasons, that there is a close coordination between Gulf states and Russia. Could you tell us how uh, Gulf states, and in particular maybe Saudi Arabia, uh, has an interest in coordination with Russia or not when it comes to uh, negotiations re regarding the, uh, the production, uh, the energy supplies, uh, the oil prices? So can you tell us a bit on this? Because this is very regularly in the news, but... Uh, for non-experts, people, it's quite difficult sometimes to uh, get exactly what's going on behind uh, the headlines. Sure, uh, I'll be glad to um, chip in. So um, the coordination mechanism um, takes place on a platform called OPEC Plus, right? So it's the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, um, uh, which is the original organization. And since 2017, the PLUS has come in and the plus are the members, non-OPEC members, but they are led by Russia, for example, and they came in to work with OPEC, hence the plus. They came in to work with OPEC since 2017 to manage the oil market. What that means is basically that they are interested to ensure that there is some level of production that gives them some level of oil price, right? Because, you know, clearly oil producers want to have a decent level of oil prices so that they can earn a decent level of income. In order to make sure that your oil price is at X level, you need to manipulate the production levels, right? So a higher production level, which means there is more oil in the world, will lead to a lower oil price, right? And similarly, 
a lower production level because there's less oil in the world will then in theory lead to higher oil prices, right? So that's the mechanism in which they try to um, basically protect um, the level of oil prices, okay? Because they need it for their economies. I think you saw in one of the slides that a lot of Middle Eastern countries are still very oil dependent, depend on oil revenues. So um, this is one of the coordination mechanisms that OPEC has with the plus countries and they meet regularly, um, how often they meet, dependent on the situation in the different years. But generally they meet, you know, about every couple of months these days to try to hash out what do we do about the oil price, right? In order to know what to do about the oil price, you need to adjust production levels. So each country has a quota. And it says, look, you can only produce so much oil this month, right? Um, so Saudi Arabia and Russia, you can because you're the big oil producers, you can produce lots of oil. Um, but the others, depending on the amount of oil you can produce, you produce less and less oil. So technically, as a group, we should be able to control how much oil there is in the world in terms of production, and has come hence come to an agreeable oil price, right? So, so this is the platform that they use to do negotiations. And you are right that since the Ukraine war, oil prices have increased, right? Um, partly because of fear, right? Um, partly because also of um, European and, and US sanctions on Russian oil. Um, so, so there are all these kinds of things which are affecting the um, uh, price of oil. But yes, Saudi Arabia and Russia in particular, as the two leaders of the OPEC and the PLUS, uh, they maintain in very close contact because it is in their interests as the largest oil producers in the world in this particular platform, right? Um, to make sure that they control as much as they can oil prices and hence oil supply levels. So, um, for example, there was talk of, well, maybe we should not let Russia stay in this organization, right? But it is really in the interest of the Gulf companies that Russia stays within this platform because even with Russian oil um, uh, industry declining because of the sanctions, et cetera, Russia will still be the second largest oil producer within OPEC plus by far, right? So, so currently it produces, I think, about 10 million barrels. Uh, Saudi is about 11 or 10.5 million after the cuts. Um, so the next largest producer, you know, is around, I think, five or six million barrels. So no matter how much Russian oil production falls naturally because of, you know, declines, they, they, they didn't maintain their wells because they're under sanctions, etc., it will not fall down to that level. So whatever it is, Russia will still have a lot of say over um, oil production and hence oil prices. So it's definitely within the Gulf interests to keep Russia on board, even though Russian oil right now is spilling into Asian markets, which has traditionally been, you know, the so-called, you know, backyard of the Gulf oil producers. The Gulf sends a lot of oil to Asia. So, so even though Russian oil is competing and competing quite effectively because of low prices, the Gulf states are kind of willing to close one eye because they need Russia to be on board with this mechanism. Thank you very much for uh, unpacking uh, that issue. Uh, let, let me move to uh, another question. This one from uh, my colleague uh, Aisha, and that relates to the um, uh, the COP28. Uh, and uh, she mentions the fact that the UN recently released a report on global stock take, uh, highlighting the importance of 
phasing out fossil fuels in order to keep uh, 1.5 degrees warming within reach. The question uh, for you, Dr. Lichen, is do you think that the UAE uh, will push for this terminology of phasing out in uh, the during the COP28 and obviously in the final uh, document uh, that will come with the summit? Okay, that's a great question. And I love these UN summits and negotiations because that's when you realize that that words are very, very important, right? That the kind of words you put into these uh, statements and declarations are, are super, super important, even though to lay observers like us, you're like, what's the difference, right? So in this case, you're right. They, they, they have tr uh, UN has put out the word phasing out of fossil fuels. But what the UAE is trying to do is to add a word there that says phasing out of unabated fossil fuels, right? Now, the word unabated here is absolutely key. Unabated fossil fuels is different from fossil fuels, right? Unabated fossil fuels means fossil fuels that are produced however, right? Abated fossil fuels are those which are produced whereby the carbon is reduced, by capturing it, you know, by reducing it, by, by producing electricity rather than gas, you know. So what they're saying is that not all fossil fuels are the same. The UAE once would like to phase out unabated fossil fuels because the UAE can produce abated fossil fuels, right? So the UAE can produce greatly decarbonized fossil fuels. Hence, it should be allowed to continue producing fossil fuels because they are not endangering you know, the, the, the climate policy as much as those like, say, Iraq, which continues to put out gas into the atmosphere when it produces oil. Hence, that is unabated fossil fuels. So, so wording here, right, semantics, is really, really important. And uh, Aisha, to answer your question, I think the UAE will push for the word phasing out unabated. Um, of course, there's going to be a huge negotiation discussions. They're going to have to give something up to other countries in order to get that through. And I think the process already started. They have you know, agreed that they would fund, put in a huge chunk of money for Africa so that Africa can have more financing for its renewable energy. They have already agreed with the US that they will also put in more, you know, financing in various clean energy energy projects. So these are some of the ways pre-COP that they are trying to get stakeholders to come around to accepting the word uh, you know, unabated into the phrase. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me turn to a question from uh... Ambassador Georgi Bustin, uh, who's uh, pointing out uh, the uh, uh, the contradiction or the tension uh, between uh, oil prices and energy transition. And he's asking you, uh, don't you think that significantly lower oil prices uh, de-incentivize uh, green energy transition? Uh, so coming back actually to a, a topic that is at the core of your presentation. So how, what do you make of this and how does that maybe uh, influence the current policies of the Gulf states? Okay, again, a great question. Um, obviously, a tension between the two. It's traditionally assumed that, you know, um, high oil prices uh, could 
you know, um, hasten, could speed up the energy transition uh, for consumers, right? That, that would be from the consumer perspective. Whereas uh, low oil prices, you know, will, will not make them to be so, uh, it won't be so urgent for consumers to then embrace the energy transition because there's, you know, lower, when you look at your bills, there's lower bills, they, they don't really care. But from the perspective of oil producers, right? So that was oil consumers. But if you look from the perspective of oil producers, right, the, the fact that in future, you know, they, they sit here at their screen, they look at all these models, and believe you me, they've done all the modeling. Um, when they look at these models done by the IEA, done by OPEC Plus, et cetera, and they see that in future, um, oil prices could be very low because of lower demand, right, because of electrific uh, electrification, et cetera, they are scared, right? They, they are very fearful of that low prices. Um, models have predicted, for example, that the oil amount of revenues that they uh, they get now is going to plunge, depending on which country, by as much as 10%, uh, 90%, 80%, that kind of thing. Imagine if your revenues in 20 years' time drop down to 20% of the level you have now. Now, that's causing a lot of worry, okay? so So in that sense, when oil producers look at the future of low oil prices, not oil consumers, but oil producers, they realize that they kind of need to do something to try to get on the bandwagon of energy transition, right? Whether it's trying to slow it down or trying to embrace renewable energy so that they can sell more oil and gas now when the price is high, rather than wait to when the price is low. Right. So so they're actually incentivized because they look at future low oil prices and think, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to sell oil now because in future it's so low. Let's produce as much as we can right now. Let's invest as much money as we can right now to expand our oil and gas views. So, so in that sense, you know, it depends on whose perspective you look at. But either way, you know, I think the energy transition is I guess it's kind of inevitable in the long run. It's just about you know the the speed and, and the pace, um, that kind of thing. Financing. Thank you. Uh, another um, another question uh, and another maybe a con contradiction or tension uh, in the uh, energy policies of the Gulf states. Uh, Lam Wenhu Padraig from the the audience is asking uh, about the fact that despite the, most of the Middle East oil being transported by sea, why is it that those countries did not build up their own navies to protect their sea lanes and instead over rely on external naval powers? So how basically why is it that uh, those that secure uh, the, uh, the the supplies, uh, the oil supplies are not those countries, but uh, they're their um, foreign uh, partners. Uh, what, how do you explain that uh, historically or maybe politically? Chinru, uh, that's a really great question. And the answer to that would be, um, as Jean Lu hinted, uh, because of their foreign partners, right? Um, the Gulf states uh, for, for decades um, have been very close, uh, particularly to you know, with the British first and then now the Americans. Um, Americans have a huge presence here in the region in terms of air bases, in terms of naval bases. And so basically the Gulf did not really have to build up a substantial navy to protect the transport of oil and gas through pirate infested waters um, you know, to get to Asia. 
because you had the Americans doing the job, right? Um, you have the French pitching in from time to time, the British pitching in from time to time, depending on the wars and, and the situations. Um, so uh, you even have Singapore pitching in, right, with the counterterrorism piracy force. And, and, and so a lot of other stakeholders in the region are happy to pitch in because they depend on those oil supplies getting through to their own countries, right? So, so in that sense, I guess the, the words that we tend to use when we describe the situation is free riding. If others are going to do it for you, particularly the Americans, right, then why do you need to put resources into doing it yourself? Uh, much better for you to put those resources into increasing investments in oil and gas, for example. So, so the, the short answer is that, you know, they have foreign partners uh, willing to take on that role. That's, that's a fascinating point. And uh, would you say, and that's more my own uh, 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 interpretation, would you say that if we look at it as this free riding phenomenon, that it, in fact, China enjoys the U.S. naval presence, that the fact that you have the U.S. providing that kind of uh, uh, global free insurance uh, for the, the, the shipping uh, of uh, oil supplies is uh, of benefit for uh, China. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Um, and, and that's one reason why I think neither China nor even Russia, for that matter, uh, want to accept, uh, want to upset the current status quo because they benefit from not just the sea lane protection and, and it's not just oil and gas, right? It's vital uh, uh, communication, sea lines of communications, right? Um, so even they benefit from the stability that the American military provides. So um, not just for, for, for ships, you know, but for uh, piracy, for, for terrorism, et cetera. So, so yes, there is this wider benefit that comes from the um, American protection. And I don't see the Chinese wanting to take on this role because then it means that they have to invest in a bigger Navy, which is here most of the time. And most of the time they're not here now, right? And that will take away resources from the South China Sea, which is where you know their core interests lie because it's you know in the in the backyard. Thank you very much. That's a fascinating conversation. Uh, uh, the 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 next question I have uh, relates to um, the clean energy transition, and uh, the question is: Do you think that clean energy transition will actually perpetrate the energy geopolitics for the GCC? And I assume the the, 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 the underlying assumption here is that uh, we will see a lot of the same things between the rivalries with regards to the rivalries among Gulf states when it comes to their oil and gas policies, the same way for the energy transition. Do you think that this is the way uh, things are evolving now? It's a great question because it talks about intra-Gulf rivalry, right? That's the big, big picture. And so far that we've seen, even if we ignore oil and gas for a moment, um, uh, ignore the renewable energy, clean clean energy, Gulf states are rivals, right? Um, they all have, you know, airplanes, right? The national air carriers are competing from Qatar um, to UAE to, to Saudi. These states are going to compete. They compete in terms of free zones, right? Um, they compete in terms of free zones. Uh, you know, UAE has lots of free zones. So does Oman. So does every other country in the Gulf. And they all offer very similar incentives, etc. So even before clean energy, they, they were big rivals, right? 
Um, with clean energy, yes, they are also there's also this integral rivalry in terms of hydrogen. So UAE, for instance, wants to capture something like one quarter of the global hydrogen market in future. Right, Oman has around the same ambition, uh, except for green, clean hydrogen, whereas UAE, it's a mix of gas and green hydrogen. Um, Saudi Arabia, of course, the big the big one in the region, also wants to capture a huge share of the green hydrogen pie. So, so yes, you have these Gulf states all competing in this area. And in a way, it's not surprising, right? Because they are oil producers. They have similar strategies on what to do in a post-oil future, whether it's economic zones or airlines or, or, or hydrogen. So in that sense, the fact that they have similar policies is not surprising because there's only so many strategies you can come up with as a response. Um, so yes, I think that the intensity of intra-Gulf um, rivalry is, is just going to increase. Thank you. The, the next question is, uh, it relates to a, a recent uh, announcement you probably uh, uh, heard about the new project uh, that was uh, promoted during the J20 uh, summit about the uh, India Middle East corridor, and it does have uh, an energy dimension. Uh, though there is a lot of skepticism, or let's say discussion on how this will actually uh, be translated in terms of logistics infrastructures. How do you look at this type of initiative, uh, which looks like a, a counter or an alternative to the uh, the um, China China Belt and Road Initiative? Do you think that this has the potential to change the uh, uh, the energy uh, geopolitics of the region, or that it's more a diplomatic narrative? Okay. Another uh, great question. Um, so this new initiative that came out of the G20, I mean, it's not the only so-called new uh, alternative transport routes, the BRI, right? Um, there have been uh, many different transport routes being um, proposed. For example, the North-South uh, transport that comes from Russia all the way to India, that's also a big one that's being proposed and that will probably link up to this new proposal in some way. Um, even the uh, the North Sea route, right? You have shipping routes, not just a land transport, but the shipping route that goes around the sea from Russia to 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 Asia. Um, that's also an alternative, albeit maritime transport route rather than an overland. So, so there is no shortage of alternatives to the BRI. Um, yes, we can see it as an alternative to to the BRI, but I'm not really sure whether we would say it's a competitor, right? Um, uh, or viable competitor, because obviously the BRI comes with a lot of money, right? That, that is ready finance. Um, you have one country that, that basically finances the whole thing. Um, not sure in the G20 version who is going to finance it, right? BRI was easy, it was China. But in G20, you have many different actors who perhaps are waiting for each other to finance it. Um, they may not have as deep pockets as China. And then you have the free rider problem, right? Who wants to finance the most of it? Because then the rest will benefit as well. So, um, you know, so yes, forgive me if I'm, you know, a little bit skeptical, but, you know, these kinds of projects are really, really expensive. And in order to make these projects viable, you need, you need the end users, right? So if you don't have end users already in place, 
then the financiers are not going to come in to finance a project because there may not be enough end users. So I think that these projects are a little bit of diplomatic narrative, um, but also I think it shows how uh, India and the Gulf states are also thinking about, you know, what are the different ways we can do to diversify our partnerships, right? And, and these are just thought processes sometimes, but I think they're very useful because they, they show that we're not just going to keep relying on the same stakeholders the whole time. And, and, and they are thinking about the future, you know, about how who others can contribute. Thank you very much. And uh, as you said, I mean, it's usually the moment when you uh, discuss the, the bill and who's going to pay for the bill that uh, partnerships can uh, become more complicated. Uh, let me turn to uh, uh, probably the, the, the last question, uh, if we have time, the, uh, the which is going back to the energy transition. And the question is, oil will continue to play a role in the future, but what are the other measures and tools oil producers can adopt in preparation for a future with reduced oil demand? Okay, um, another great question. Um, oil producers have a variety of um, strategies, and I think I did uh, hint at some of these strategies um, in uh, the presentation. Uh, so uh, just to recap, uh, oil producers can try to decarbonize their oil and hence make them more attractive for countries that are focused on the greenness of the oil that they import, right? So if you can show that the oil that, say, Europe imports uh, from the UAE is greener than the one that they import from Indonesia, okay, maybe the UAE has more of a chance because they can, they can show that the oil is greener. Now, how do they show the oil is greener? It's one thing to say, hey, look, I'm producing it using solar and nuclear, but how do you prove it, right? Because you need to, to prove that you can't just claim it. Uh, now, in this sense, um, some of these Gulf states are quite advanced in trying to certify uh, the greenness of their claims. So they actually have certification bodies, internationally recognized certification bodies where she come in and they do like audits and checks and verifications and issue certificates that, you know, this claim is correct, right? And they will issue a certificate to say that, you know, I don't know, one ton of oil was produced using uh, solar energy, for example. So so, so they, the Gulf states have been quite keen in coming up with these um, uh, verification and monitoring policies. And, and that's a really good thing for them, right? Um, a second, another thing which they have done uh, is, of course, um, to uh, the, about the circular carbon that I mentioned, right? They're pushing this idea that we can still produce carbon, but we can try to reuse the carbon so that it doesn't keep going, it doesn't keep adding to the carbon, right? We can keep using it, we can try to suck out of the air. And if you look at uh, the numbers, the Gulf states are very active in financing projects that try to suck out carbon from the atmosphere not just to suck up, but to store it permanently underground, right? And they're doing it, as I said, partly because of climate, but really it's it's to protect their, their oil, right? They have to market it and show our oil is produced using carbon-friendly purposes. We don't just produce oil and spew it into the atmosphere, the carbon. We actually capture that carbon. So again, it makes oil from, you know, the Gulf states more attractive than oil from, say, um, Iraq, 
right, which doesn't have the financing to do these kinds of um, projects that can capture or suck up the, the carbon. So, so they're doing a lot of these policies that basically ensures they are the last man standing in a green world. They are the ones whose oil will be in demand because their oil is, well, green, not really green, but low carbon. Right. Uh, and as I said before, oil is going to be needed still for a wide range of things. If you can prove that your oil is, you know, lower carbon than your rivals, then I think you have, you know, one foot in the door um, uh, among consumers who still need oil. Thank you. Uh, another question that comes uh, from the audience from uh, Richard Wong, who's asking, uh, about the the link between oil and the U.S. currency, the U.S. dollar, and the fact that for historically that there has been a close relationship between uh, oil transactions and U.S. dollar, and how do you see that evolving? Because and correct me if I'm wrong, there was I think for the first time uh, a few months ago the UAE making a transaction uh, in uh, the in the Chinese currency. So how? Do you see the evolution between, let's say, oil, uh, oil transactions and the primacy of uh, the US dollar until now? Okay, great question. And one that's certainly very topical. So yes, uh, transactions or payments for oil have been made not just in yuan, but also in rupees. Right. Um, so so um, there are attempts to try to de-dollarize um, the oil trade. And that has led some people to say, hey, you know, are we seeing the end of the, the US dollar in, in oil? Right. Um, but also don't forget that the US is actually the largest producer of oil. We, we tend to forget that. Right. We tend to think that it's Saudi Arabia that produces that is the world's largest producer of oil. But actually, it's not true. It's the US. Um, it's just that the U.S. doesn't export as much as Saudi because U.S. consumes, uh, you know, much of its, its own oil. Um, but in any case, it, it still means that the U.S. dollar, particularly in the Gulf, will still reign supreme. Why? Because the U.S. dollar is pegged to all of the Gulf economies except to Kuwait, which I believe operates on the floating on the basket of currencies that, that kind of floats. But still, the U.S. dollar is the biggest component, but... Unlike the other Gulf states, it's not the only component, right? So for many, many uh, decades, for example, the exchange rate between UAE Durham and the US dollar has remained the same, right? Sean Lu, you were here you know, a few years ago. It has not changed. It's the same, it's the same um, rate. So I don't see the Gulf states de-pegging from the US dollar anytime soon because it gives them a kind of stability. They, they don't really have to manage too much their own inflation or monetary policy because it, it kind of like follows the US trend. If the US raises the rate, they also raise the rate, right? Um, so it makes it a bit easier for them. But also the Gulf states have lots and lots of investments in the US, in Europe even, right? Tons of investments there, whether it's in electric car companies or whether it's in all these chip making companies or, or, or various uh, other um, real estate uh, things in the US and Europe. So if they're going to de-dollarize, that's going to also affect quite a bit of that, that relationship, right? Um, UAE also holds a lot of hard currency and a lot of it is US dollars as well. So um, I don't see them de-dollarizing, although of course they could, yes, I think it makes sense to have some of these trades done in local currencies. 
Um, sure, why not, right? But I think on the whole, although they might trade more using other currencies, I don't think that will endanger the um, dominance um, of the US dollar. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lee Chen Sim. Uh, this uh, will be, uh, believe uh, the ah wait. I actually have a last question that is uh, uh, that is asked uh, from the audience. If uh, we have, yeah, we have about three minutes, so we can uh, very quickly. Um, could you speak about the emerging carbon market in the GCC? Will this be a new source uh, of income? Okay, that's the question. <laughs> Excellent question. So um, yes, yeah, so carbon trading, okay, specific carbon trading is one of the very, very um, emergent themes that we find pre-COP, right? So in the run-up to COP, there have been a lot of noise um, about uh, using carbon markets here because they want to trade in them to make them more effective, to make companies actually realize that there's a price to be paid for carbon and that you can trade it to make it more efficient and effective and profitable. Right. Um, in fact, there was a Singapore company called ACX that started, Singapore-based company that started in Singapore um, to trade carbon. And they have since moved to Abu Dhabi and they are now using the platforms in Abu Dhabi to try and trade carbon because they found a more, I suppose, welcoming environment there uh, with the oil and gas companies and carbon. So, um, yes, uh, carbon trading is certainly something that's going on. Um, a new organization was set up recently called um, Net Zero Trading Emission Net Zero Emissions Trading Association, and they are also interested in trading carbon. So you have a whole slew, and it was a very well attended launch, right? Um, from a lot of businesses, um, I was partly involved. I was as a host uh, looking at this um, organization. So I can tell you that carbon trading is a huge thing here in the Gulf, um, particularly in the run up to COP twenty eight, where. I could be totally wrong, but one of my bets is that the big news that will come off COP28 is that the UAE will set a carbon price, right? Um, a bit like Singapore, uh, it may start off with a very low carbon price, but at least there will be some kind of uh, intention, I suppose, that they are moving in this direction to price carbon. Um, so, you know, we, we will see a, a very, um, I think, intense um, discussion about carbon uh, moving forward in the Gulf. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sim. And this will be uh, uh, the, uh, the the last word of uh, this uh, this talk. And uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, the opportunity to verify your your bet uh, on the the next uh, COP, uh, which is happening not uh, not uh, very far from now, uh, just a few weeks from now. Uh, this this, as I said, concludes our session. Uh, we meet next week. Uh, again uh, on Zoom for the, the, the next lecture, uh, which will be on a great topic, uh, a new addition uh, to our uh, MEM on our Middle East 101 course, which is on the role of women and youth as a force of change uh, in the Middle East. So fascinating topic uh, that I encourage everyone to, uh, uh, to uh, attend. Uh, again, uh, Dr. Li Chen, thank you very much uh, for being with us uh, today. Uh, and we hope to see you uh, very soon, uh, either in Singapore or on Zoom. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye to everyone.